Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is the Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. I continue reading from Lost Rites, Leaving Churchland, my memoir about life in the church. In this episode, I leave my bucolic country church to enter the big league. St. Philip's in Unionville was a burgeoning suburban parish whose upwardly mobile members were going places. I had to change gears in order to catch up with them. Things were gearing up in my personal life as well. It would be zero to 60 in a matter of weeks. This is Chapter 8, Part 1. I had so much to learn. A priest in a country parish is a family chaplain of sorts. You're not the one with the power. You're serving the ones with the power. The matriarchs and the patriarchs and that long line of ancestors looking down from their frames on the wall of the narthex, stern and unyielding, unamused. It's the perfect role for a middle child, your inner lamb accommodating the needs and desires of the larger forces surrounding you, If you should get your way, it's by charm and compromise. It's not the role for your inner Leo, who might have to slip into the city from time to time to let out his mighty roar. A priest in a big growing suburban parish is something else altogether. The members of your congregation are people on the move. Their train has already left the station with crying infants and overstuffed luggage and a constant great commotion up and down the aisles. And everyone's a commandant, barking orders and rearranging things to their liking. If you want to make your mark in a suburban church, first, you've got to get on board. Then you've got to be heard above the din. If you have an inner Leo, this would be a good time to find him and let him out. St. Philip's in Unionville had been a country parish, and not that long ago. The little church at the north end of town was built before the First World War, a hub for local farmers. But as the city of Toronto crept northward, quaint historic villages like Unionville became a suburban developer's dream. A pond or a mill or a fire hall looked great in sales brochures, and Unionville had all three. By the time I moved to Unionville in 1982, brash new suburban streets pushed up against the split-rail fences of postcard-worthy dairy farms. It was an idyllic escape from the stress of the urban work week, if you didn't mind the commute. And the sight of grazing cows on a hot summer's day was a pleasant diversion, 
if you didn't let the flies bother you. St. Philip's was a church with a problem. They didn't know it yet, Bishop Brown said to me when he appointed me there. They were overflowing their building, and they would need to expand or rebuild. You don't have to do anything right away, he advised. Just let the problem create itself, which it did mere months after my arrival. The new incarnation of the church would be born unto us like the swaddled Christ child himself on my first Christmas Eve there. The volunteers who supervised the babies and toddlers in the nursery beneath the church looked up and saw the floorboards literally heaving and groaning with the weight of a full house of worshippers above their heads. We'd soon be building a new church. But first, there was the matter of establishing myself as a leader in their midst, the sort of leader capable of taking them to the promised land. I was not yet thirty, I was a new priest, and I made a salary easily half of that brought home by most of my parishioners. Any actual credibility would have to be spiritual in nature, not worldly, and it would have to be earned. My first meeting upon my arrival was with the Sunday school superintendent and his roster of volunteer teachers, all women. They were sitting around a table in the parish hall beneath the church. The meeting was already underway when I arrived. They turned their heads to take me in as I entered the room. Then they turned back to resume their business. I pulled up a chair. I sat through to the end of the meeting without anyone speaking to me. As they wrapped up, I cleared my throat and introduced myself. I said I would look forward to working with them next time. The choir director was a high-strung powerhouse in full command of the organist and of her robed choristers. I waited a full year until the new fall season began to address some concerns I had about some of their well-established worship habits. The congregation boasted, for instance, no fewer than five forms of dismissal at the main Sunday service— five ways of saying goodbye. There was the blessing of the priest from the front of the church. Then everyone rose to sing the final hymn as the choir and ministers recessed out. We stopped at the back for the choir to sing a departing motet. I said the words of dismissal from there, and then the organist played a postlude before anyone got up and out and on their way. We were dallying, as if we didn't really want to go back out into the world— which is where Christians belonged. I attended the first choir practice of the new season, suggestions in hand, changes I wanted to make to the worship in the coming year. Modern liturgy, I explained, as the choir members sat in their stalls, tended to clarify the various movements of a worship service by simplifying them. So, perhaps, at the end of the service, just the words of dismissal, the recessional hymn, and then out we go. Only a suggestion. And as to the entrance rite, I went on, didn't it seem a little grandiose to have a formal procession every week with crucifer, acolytes, and choir? Why not just take our places as we arrived, me included, while the organ prelude was being played? Then, once we'd all assembled, we could stand along with the congregation and lead them in the singing of the opening hymn. Why not save the procession for special occasions, for high feasts and holy days? They were silent when I finished speaking. I could tell by their faces they were having a difficult time with their new priest telling them what to do. Then they rose as one 
and yelled at me. I couldn't make out all the various threads, the voices were so many and so loud, but I got a distinct impression of where they wished me to stick my new ideas. But the greatest dynasty to be faced at St. Philip's was the Chancel Guild. It was presided over not by a coordinator or by a president like most churches, but by a self-titled directress. The Guild managed all the hardware we used in our worship, the supply of bread and wine, and the fine linens and seasonal hangings. This was administered through a fund that was independent of the church budget, yet, curiously, was always abundant. Altar flowers were the main source of the Guild's income. Church members donated the Sunday flowers in memory of loved ones, but business must have been especially brisk. The flowers at St. Philip's, for which donors paid a premium, appeared out of nowhere. There were never any receipts from what the directress called her secret source. They were always beautiful, if more like funeral arrangements than traditional altar flowers, but the flowers tended to wilt a few short days into the week after they'd been sent home with the people who donated them. Strange. The independence of the Chancel Guild came from their never having to come cap in hand to the church wardens for handouts. As a result, they pretty much did whatever they pleased. Before I arrived, when the wall behind the altar needed painting, they alone chose its new color, a shocking theatrical pink, which would have been nice for a bathroom, maybe. I was heartsick in my early days at St. Philip's. I was intimidated by these forceful personalities and disappointed by how little my personal charm did to win them over. It had always worked before. But this was the big league now. Power talked, not charm. I would have to learn to toughen up and take charge. Why spin in only one direction when you can spin in another at the same time? Isn't that what the hokey pokey had always taught us? Or Father Abraham? Or any of those silly camp songs that have you flailing your arms and whirling around like a crazy person? I was trying to find a place for myself at St. Philip's. At the same time, Sandy and I were trying to find a place in our lives for one another— We'd started dating before I left Cookstown and were trying to spend more time together as I settled into my new ministry in Unionville, but her demanding job and travel schedule meant frequent absences, and my new job was requiring my full attention. Making things more complicated, Sandy wasn't well. She was uncommonly thin— she seemed to have strange dietary restrictions that prevented any possible weight gain. She refused butter and any rich or fatty foods, at least in the company of others. She ate a lot of fruit and vegetables. Yet, when we'd go into town to see a movie, we would often end up afterwards at a coffee shop called Decadent Desserts that served luxurious double chocolate cakes and creamy creations— and she'd always join me in one of those. It didn't make sense. I'd never heard the terms anorexia or bulimia, but I learned firsthand the devastating effects they have on someone in their clutches. Nothing is ingested without judgment 
and without consequence, leaving the person weak, sick, and guilt-ridden. Sandy's condition, undiagnosed and untreated, triggered the caregiver in me, and also the Savior. Her family was concerned about her. Her fellow workers at Church House in Toronto tried to intervene, recommending counselling or even a medical leave. I stepped up and found myself part of a small circle of support committed to Sandy's well-being. In this way, Sandy entered my heart. I was caring for her rather than simply enjoying her, looking out for her rather than simply gazing upon her with love. It was not an ideal way for two people to get to know one another. In a sense, we weren't meeting as equals. But we shared a deep connection with the church, engaging with its ideals while deriding its all-too-human foibles. She felt safe and familiar to me, like a cousin might, or a childhood friend, someone who wouldn't end up hurting me. In 1983, we became engaged. We had to change our plans several times when the decree absolute for my divorce from Joan got delayed. It was a stressful time. We broke up and reconciled and then broke up again. But my heart always led me back to her to try to work things out, even though there were times I think she'd have preferred if I had just walked away. Our last breakup was dramatic, spectacular even, and became the desperate inspiration for our one final determined effort to save the relationship. We would get married in the fall, in Calgary, her hometown, this time for sure. Sandy left her job and moved back to Calgary to live a short time with her parents and prepare for the wedding. She needed to recover from the pressures of her work and to heal from her illness. I was to follow two months later, and we would marry in her family's church, surrounded by the people and the landscape that grounded her. I couldn't easily understand our decision. It had been so impulsive in the end, and I found it difficult to explain to others. So I said little to the parish as I prepared to go to Calgary for a 10-day holiday in early November. Instead, I wrote a cryptic announcement for the church bulletin that would appear the first Sunday I was away. Having determined our future in the midst of a major meltdown and then separating for two months, neither of us was feeling entirely confident about meeting up again to profess our marital vows to one another. Both the rehearsal and the wedding the next day were fraught with crossed signals and backroom doubts on both sides. My parents flew out from Toronto. They were joined by several of my uncles and aunts who lived in the West, but my brother and sister didn't attend, the travel being too expensive for them. Likewise, none of my Ontario friends made the trip, except for Peter, my best man. He was a new friend, a good man who didn't share my evangelical past, someone less inclined to judge me for my former broken marriage. Also, as a new medical doctor, he could afford the trip. As Peter and I retired to our hotel room following the rehearsal, I desperately needed to air with him my doubts, to hear them spoken out loud. But he fell asleep almost immediately, and I was left to fret and fester through the night, alone, and with a mounting sense of dread. I wasn't sure about this. Ours was a morning wedding, with a brunch following at a country club to which Sandy's family belonged. 
Neither of us had wanted the spectacle of a dinner reception with a DJ and loud drunken guests, the celebrating going on late into the night. We chose something less euphoric, something understated, almost so as not to attract too much attention. We honeymooned for a night at the Bamp Springs Hotel and then returned to Calgary to prepare for our drive home together across the country. The morning of our departure, we headed out in a wonderland of shimmering prairie hoarfrost. It was magical, as if we were gliding through a fantasy movie set. For a while, the magic worked. We read to one another as we drove, and we talked. We birthed our dreams for the kind of future we wanted to build for ourselves. The book we read was Michelle Landsberg's Women and Children First, which was charting a new course for society based on principled and informed intentionality. In a sense, that was what we were doing ourselves, overcoming our fears and misgivings with the power of intention. Light over darkness, confidence over doubts. We could make this work. By the time we returned to Unionville, we were ready to present ourselves as a couple and receive the good wishes the parish wanted to extend to us. We felt hopeful as we began our new life together. Our hearts seemed finally to be in the right place, and Sandy's health began to return. She put on weight and searched for meaningful and stabilizing work in her first profession as a nurse. If I had remained in Cookstown rather than taking on the challenges of St. Philip's, things might have gone differently. We might actually have had a chance to spend the time together we needed to form a lifelong partnership. But the demands of the parish rose up, insistent and all-consuming, and I was too young and inexperienced to know how to set limits. While I was present at the births of our first two children, Heather and Robert, I became an absentee husband and dad for much of the rest of our time in Unionville. I turned my attention instead to my church family, leaving Sandy to find her own way as a new wife and mother. A former colleague once mused that one has to be able to distinguish between the church as an institution and the church as the people. I think that's right. It's the people who keep you grounded when the going gets tough, and St. Philip's was where I learned that. St. Philip's was a complex entity. It was certainly an institution, and many of its members brought their workaday boardroom experience to its administration. As their parish priest, I was, in effect, their CEO, a senior official responsible for the health and stability of the organization and accountable to the board for its success. In fact, I wasn't accountable to them at all, but to my bishop, who alone had the power to hire or fire me. But that didn't stop them thinking otherwise and applying pressure whenever attendance was down or expenses were up. Fortunately, St. Philip's was also demonstrably a church family of real people living real lives with real joys and sorrows. As their priest, I was responsible for their care, for the cure of their souls, with an accountability that went way beyond church wardens and bishops. It was the life passages of the church members, their births, marriages, illnesses, deaths, that created 
the family of St. Philip's, and every passage drew us closer together, especially the deaths. One of the members of that family was Jennifer. She was 14, bright and athletic, a healthy reflection of both her parents and a member of my confirmation class. She was full of fun, but not the cruel or disruptive kind. She just enjoyed being with her friends, living in the moment and soaking up life itself, except that she was dying. A vibrant teenager with leukemia is a parent's worst nightmare. Her bravery in the face of her illness only made it harder for everyone to bear. Every time she was forced to endure another excruciating lumbar puncture to test the cerebral spinal fluid for signs of the disease's progress, she accepted the procedure, folding herself into a fetal position while her parents stroked her hair and held her hand and talked her through it. It tore at my heart to think of her having to endure this. It made me feel helpless, as if I had nothing useful to offer her or her parents by way of solace. There was nothing any of us could do but watch and pray. When Jennifer died, over 400 people attended her funeral. We had to use a larger neighboring church, Little St. Philip's in the village being utterly inadequate. Half her school turned out, most of her classmates looking upon death for the first time. It was hard enough to play the professional, rising above my own feelings, to offer words of consolation and prayers of hope. But when the young people began weeping, falling into each other's arms, there was almost no going on. Jennifer died before Easter. Every year after that, as we rehearsed once again the details of Jesus' death on the cross, I thought of Jennifer. Seven years later, after I had left Unionville, I wrote to Jennifer's parents, Tom and Kathy. I wanted them to know that I still thought of Jennifer, especially at Easter. They wrote back to thank me. My letter had arrived at a time, Kathy said, when people's memories of her are fading, remembrances are becoming fewer, while they themselves continued to struggle every day with their grief. There were other deaths as well, infants, newlyweds, one involving a horrific murder-suicide, old people. But sometimes there was laughter, too, even in the midst of death. Bruce was a Scot, a scrappy Glaswegian, and he was twice my age. We'd meet up for beers in the pub down the street from the tack shop he ran. He had no use for the church, or for religion, as he'd frequently tell me, but he didn't mind meeting up with me, partly because his wife Olive was a member of St. Philip's, and also because I could be irreverent too. He liked that. Bruce fell apart when his wife was diagnosed with inoperable cancer. I would find him at her bedside at the hospital, clinging to her hand, saying, Don't leave me, Olive. Olive, don't go. She didn't leave him, not yet, living six weeks beyond what the medical staff expected, sustained by his need for her and little else. The day she died, Bruce called me to the house to help with the funeral plans. I sat with him in the living room as friends and family members came and went, some preparing meals in the kitchen, others sitting in a nearby room, while Bruce and I talked. When we finished, 
I put my notepad back in my briefcase, snapped it shut like an insurance salesman, and said loudly, Well, if you don't want that policy, sir, I'm not sure there's anything we can do for you. He slapped me on the back as I walked out the door. Apparently, the household was shocked that a minister would act with such disrespect. But my little charade wasn't for them. It was for my friend, and it delighted him. Bruce and I took to meeting up again at the pub. We talked about Olive, but we talked about other things, too. He'd never been much of a churchgoer. Olive played that role in their marriage. But now that she was gone, he began slipping into a back pew just as the Sunday service began and then slipping out again just before it ended. This is what he said when I asked him what he was looking for. You know that part of the service when you're up at the altar preparing things for communion? I nodded. And you bring out the goblet, or whatever it's called, and it has that white thing on the top of it? The pall, yes, I said. And then you take a hanky and wave it over top? Well, it's not a hanky, it's a purificator, and I don't wave it, but okay. Well, I always expect at that moment that you're going to go, shazam, and make a rabbit appear. I never prepared the altar again without having that image somewhere in the back of my mind and smiling inwardly, thinking of my brother Bruce. When a priest speaks of their church family, these are not idle words or gratuitous. Church politics may discourage us and make us feel like packing it in, but it's the people themselves who plant our feet, reminding us of why we're there in the first place. At St. Philip's, and every other church I've served, the people got into my heart and never went away again. And when that fire comes on, I want to hear it. I don't want to fear it. And I... I've been reading from Lost Rights, Leaving Churchland. Thank you for joining me. Part of the spiritual journey is simply growing up, and part of growing up is being stretched in ways that make us grow. In Unionville, I was learning about life in the fast lane. It would be a while before I learned how to slow things down and enjoy the ride. Perhaps you've had similar experiences. If so, I invite you to share those in the Facebook group, The Mystic Cave, or drop me an email personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. But it's too late.